Okay, well, welcome, and thank you, Malcolm, for the time of communion. We've spent some... Are we right to go now? Oh, okay, sorry. We've spent some time in the series talking about emotions. Today we're going to talk about disgust, because when we were deciding who was going to talk about what, I got the short straw. Um, <laughs> it's kind of an unusual emotion to think about. I mean, why, after all, is it that we sometimes feel disgust in the first place? I think it's because disgust is a natural reaction to seeing something precious or beautiful become defiled or ruined. I read about an art heist in which a normal, ordinary-seeming couple stole a famous painting. They They just cut it out of the frame early one morning in the 1960s when the museum had just opened. They shuffled out the door, the guy apparently had it under his coat, and then ran away to the getaway car. The story didn't really bother me too much because, I mean, hey, it's just modern art. Uh, Thank goodness they didn't take anything valuable. I mean, you know, look at it. Actually, the truth be told, it's apparently worth about $160 million. How is this possible? Uh, By contrast, when when I heard about the destruction of the artifacts at the Museum of Baghdad, Uh, the destruction of artifacts that were thousands of years old, which took place after the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, I felt kind of sick. Here were beautiful and important artifacts that were thousands of years old, which had shaped our understanding of the ancient world and which had been stolen or demolished. Now these pieces had real value. Perhaps I've revealed some of my biases, but you get my point. We feel disgust when something beautiful or precious is treated without the dignity care and respect that it deserves when innocence is trampled on for some ugly purpose or no purpose at all. The most obvious example is when we hear of harm done to children, but sadly there are plenty of other examples of people being horrible to each other. Just as pain is necessary to keep us from going too far physically, next slide, um, just as pain is necessary to keep us from going too far physically and injuring ourselves, disgust, moral disgust or more moral disgust or moral outrage is essential to keep us from taking a wrong turn or going very far in the wrong direction morally because doing so would injure our soul to say nothing of others. Disgust is to our moral sensibilities what pain is to our physical senses. The famous ancient Christian theologian St. Augustine explained that evil is a privation. It is a distortion of the good. It does not exactly have its own real existence, but it is the result of some go- something good being altered or warped into something ungodly, some ugly thing. And disgust is a very natural internal reaction to all this. We hate seeing what is beautiful, what is precious, dragged through the mud. In an unexpected kind of way, the emotion of disgust, perhaps more than any other emotion that we've talked about so far, gives us reason to believe in God. This is a little unexpected, I know. See, normally, every time something bad happens, we're used to hearing someone else say, or we, we ourselves say to ourselves, where is God? How could this happen? I remember when I was a uh, teaching assistant at, at my senior year at university, uh, and it came up that I believed in God. The professor, who was a very smart Jewish guy, commented kind of offhand, well, what about the Holocaust? His comment sort of exemplifies this view where the fact that such bad things can and do happen is, uh, in the world is sort of put in the balance as evidence somehow against the existence of God. 
But I noticed something interesting when I was teaching uh, World War II to my year 10 students. We showed them Schindler's List at the end of the term, and some of the students were so disgusted at the Nazis that they actually yelled threats at the Nazi characters in the movie. What about I come beat you up? I'm going to kill you. They're yelling at the screen. And it was just so evident to me. We feel disgust because we know that's not how things are supposed to go. We have a deep sense that people should be treated with dignity. We feel disgust when we see another person, a human being with innate dignity, being treated like trash. We know in our bones that's wrong. But just let me ask, where does this sense of right and wrong come from? From society? Well, imagine this. If the Nazis had won or killed or brainwashed everyone who disagrees with them, would they have suddenly been right? They would have been the only ones left in society. There would have been no one left in society to disagree with them. Well, no, they wouldn't have been right. Things would have just been really messed up. So we have to ask, where does this knowledge of right and wrong come from? Where else, if not from God? Notice we haven't made mention of the Bible this whole time. We've just been examining a logical inference based on the idea of an objective moral order. The moral order must have come from somewhere other than society. And it didn't come from the natural world, so it came from some other source. But also notice how well the moral law of the universe fits with what the Bible says about people. In Genesis 1.27, we read about the creation of humans. So God created man, mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. This is where the idea of human dignity comes from. Notice how careful the Bible is to make sure that we understand that women also share in God's image. I wonder how many other ancient texts from the second millennium before Christ would be careful to make sure that we know that women have equal dignity with men in this fundamental way. There's a little hint. Um, So we came to infer the existence of God just from a logical analysis about the moral order of things. But we noticed that this way of looking at things fits right at home with the Bible. Hmm. After Genesis 1 which describes how we are created with dignity, comes Genesis 3, which describes humanity's fall from grace. Adam and Eve turned from God and severed the close relationship that humanity enjoyed with God. At one point, humanity was naked and unashamed in the presence of God. Now our natural impulse is to run from God, to hide from God, or to disregard God, and even rebel against His ways. For every person, there's a distance between ourselves and God. And I think it's helpful to bear in mind that the distance between God and ourselves might actually be really huge. One Bible verse in particular comes to mind that gets, to, that gets this point across. The prophet Isaiah is searching for a metaphor so Israel can understand how far they are from God. In Isaiah, and in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, he says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. Think about like a leper or somebody who has, has to be totally removed from society because of how profoundly and irreversibly unclean they are. Then it goes on. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and the wind, uh, sorry, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Now Isaiah is really going as far afield as he can in search of a metaphor to describe the depths of our unrighteousness before God. So he says our deeds, our best deeds, are like filthy rags. The term filthy rags, or polluted garments, as some translations have it, was the term used for a bloody pile of rags that had been put to the same use 
as women's hygiene products or sanitary napkins. So not really a pleasant image of our good deeds there, Isaiah. And bear in mind that for a period of several days, each month women were not allowed to enter the tabernacle area to worship God. This period of time was called the woman's period of uncleanness. So Isaiah is doing, so this is what Isaiah is doing. He's looking for the most unclean thing that he can think of and saying to Israel, that is what your good deeds are like. It's hard to imagine what the respectable religious leaders of the time would have thought when they came across this text. I can only imagine them choking on a matzo ball or something as they read it. (laughs) The message of the prophets was also called the burden of the prophets. And it's as though you can feel Isaiah stretching as far as language would allow him to say, things are not okay, things are not hunky-dory. The best you have to offer God is disgusting. This this is not an image, uh, sorry, this is not a message that is easy to hear in our culture that obsesses over self-esteem. And it's never an easy message to give. This is the tragedy of sin. God created us with inherent dignity and value that can't be taken away from us. But since the fall, we naturally orient our whole lives and ourselves Uh, our whole lives around ourselves and our self-interest. Our lives are not lived in service of the true and living God naturally. We We may make some allowance for God, but remember that if we prize anything, our health, our kids, anything over God, that thing is an idol to us. And holding God in such high regard is almost the definition of foolishness in the eyes of the world. Isaiah is burdened to tell us that we're not as good as we think we are. Why would he say that? Isaiah had a perspective-defining experience early on, and it shaped his whole understanding of the world. At the beginning of the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, the prophet describes a powerful vision of God, one of the most memorable encounters in Scripture. It happens right after he enters the temple. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their face, with two they... With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah had a vision of the majesty and beauty of God, and his first response was to say, Woe am I, I'm a man of unclean lips. And Isaiah saw, after Isaiah saw the surpassing greatness of God in a vision, he reevaluated the world around him. He even reevaluated himself. There's a nice quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes that goes something like this A mind that is stretched by a new idea can never go back to its old dimensions. This was a big new idea an earth-shaking vision of God Almighty. The vision deserves a sermon or several sermons unto itself, but today we will have to make do with observing one of the obvious consequences of the fact that God is high and holy and exalted and we are completely on the other end of the spectrum. There's a gaping chasm separating us from God. And if the best we have is only adding to the problem, only making us further removed from God, How are we supposed to fix this? Well, there is another, even more famous passage in Isaiah. And it deals exactly with this problem. It turns out that we can't come to God 
But Isaiah chapter, three, chapter 53 gives us God's solution. He comes to us. Isaiah speaks of God's chosen one, and things do not unfold as you might expect. Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 3, has this description of what will happen to God's chosen one. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought that his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Hmm. Who could Isaiah have in mind here? This passage was written hundreds of years before Christ, but is there anyone else about whom this could have been written? There are groups of Jewish believers in Jesus who will buy ad space in certain areas of New York that are heavily Jewish and just print the text of Isaiah 53 there uh, with the words, Who is this? written above it. And they are effective campaigns. Many Jewish people have come to Christ just by reading this chapter and realizing that it must be about Jesus. Christ lived a perfect life, each day marked by self-sacrifice and good deeds that were truly good in the sight of God, who sees all things as they truly are. Unlike us, Christ was never disgusting to God. He was never sinless. Oh, sorry, he was, he was sinless, blameless, beautiful, perfect, and pure. Where we fail miserably and emit the stench of disgust, Jesus was pure and holy in every part of his life. His final good deed was utterly bloody, but the blood of Christ brought cleanness where there had been defilement and reconciliation where there had been enmity. He brought good news to those who were far off. At the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes how Jesus changes people. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Notice that phrase, like the rest. We are rightly disgusted by sin, but we, uh, but we still feel love for sinners because all of us are sinners. Christ loves sinners. He hates sin. But because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Though we are sinful, and though God has every right to reject us, He has not turned away. He has nailed all that is disgusting in us to the cross. We can come to God and freely admit all that is wrong about us. We can cast our anxiety upon Him because He hears us, and He does not give up. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, in contrast, with our failed good deeds, God is doing His own good deeds, and His work takes place inside us. In Ephesians, Paul says it this way, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Once our good deeds were something disgusting to God, now we are the good work that God is doing. Our salvation came because of Christ's work. Our transformed life is possible 
because of the good and faithful work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. At last we participate in God's good plan by doing the good deeds that He prepared in advance for us to do. I think of Jesus as when God came to us in God's work through the power of the Holy Spirit as when God brings us before the throne of God to make us pure and holy as God always intended. When our good deeds failed us, God made us His good deed. And now, with transformed hearts, we go on to bless others with the love that Christ has brought about in us.